Hi there, welcome to Primary Care Talks. I'm Dr. Hassan Johan, your host from Eastern Academic Health Science Network. We're here in the busy, bustling borough of Islington talking to Nish Manik about her programme, Next Generation GP. Nish, firstly, thanks again for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to us today. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to work with NHS England? Uh, thanks for inviting me on the podcast. Uh, so I'm Nish, I'm a GP registrar in Cambridge. Um, last year I was really lucky because I took a year out of my GP training to be a clinical fellow at NHS England. Um, it's part of a national scheme that's run by the National Medical Director of the NHS, uh, who was Sir Bruce Keogh last year, um, and there are 30 junior doctors that take part and take, all take years out of their training to get some hands-on leadership experience. So has that, has that been what you expected to be over the last year? Are you coming to, how, how long is the total programme for? So I've actually I've finished now. I'm now back in GP training. Um, was it what I expected? It probably exceeded my expectations, actually. It was absolutely amazing uh, for reasons that I suspect we'll come on to. Uh, and that's for those reasons are why I set up the Next Generation GP programme. Okay. And so one of the reasons we're here today is to talk about that programme. And I gather you, you are passionate about leadership and in, in general practice. Uh, so I suppose what might be helpful for people out there is we want to know where does that come from? Was that something that stuck with you from medical school or, or earlier? Or is it something that the programme that you then were, were part of built into you? It's a good question. So it did start at medical school, interestingly. Um, I didn't really know much about leadership at all until I got to my fourth year and you have to choose to do an extra degree so your BSc at medical school and I sat down with all these options there was one that was management related it was amazing it was the best year I had at medical school I think I suddenly realized that I'd lived in this medical bubble and at the end of that year I understood much more about the wider system and I realized there were loads more factors that get to determine the care that I get to to deliver in my consulting room. As a GP, I, I know that you know, having previously done surgical training and coming to general practice, that, that uh, you know, the passion I have for general practice, not least for the clinical side, is, is the managerial side because actually you get more involved in management than, than you necessarily would in some other aspects of, of medicine. Uh, do you think that's why you ended up in general practice then? I went into GP because um, I really like people's stories. And I once, so the president of the Royal College of GPs once upon a time was Iona Heath. Mm -hmm. And when I was a medical student, I spent a bit of time with her. And she said something to me that really stayed with me. She said, uh, in the hospital, diseases stay and patients come and go. And in general practice, patients stay and diseases come and go. And that really sums up general practice for me. Um, and having done all my hospital rotations, I realised I like people and I like knowing what's happening to people. Um, I'm less interested in getting, I think my attention span probably doesn't, doesn't suit getting into the depths of their disease, but I like to know about how it's affecting, how it's affecting them. I, and I love that I get to wake up every day and say, I'm going to help 30 or 40 people today. And it might not be doing much more than just listening to them. Um, but I get to say that, and that's a real privilege, and that's why I chose GP. That's a brilliant reason to come into general practice. So do you think that there is really a lack of leadership skills and, and, and innovation that comes from that in, in general practice, or, or even in, in medicine as a whole? Yeah, I think, I think there is, especially at a junior level. I can only really talk from my perspective. 
Um, but I think one of the problems is our perception of leadership, and it's almost the word is quite off-putting. We can't really define it, so we tend to attach lots of kind of nebulous, fluffy descriptors to it until we don't really know what we're talking about. Um, but for me, leadership is just about changing things around you. And our other perception is often that you need seniority and titles to do that. Um, it's a bit like you know, being elected to the Pope. You've got to have loads of letters after your name and done amazing things. And then there's a big ceremony with white smoke and you get entrusted into some inner circle. And then you can do leadership. Um, I think that's wrong, actually. And leadership is just about changing things around you. And you don't need seniority and titles to do that. So part of the problem is our perception of it. And I think the other part of the problem is leadership skills. So we also tend to assume, and I include myself in this, that leaders are born and not made. And these people that are doing leadership positions have just always known how to lead and they're just really different to us. Um, but what I've learned over the last year is that's not true, actually. And these are teachable skills. Um, and I wish we had more emphasis on them in our training. Leadership skills are about being able to change my clinical environment so I can be the best clinician that I can be. And in the same way that we now accept that communication skills help us to be the best clinicians that we can be, I think we should start to put the same weight on leadership skills. So that, that's great to hear, Nish. Um, and, and, and listening to you, I, I wonder whether, whether we should be thinking about using a different term rather than leader to try to encourage more people. What do you think? It's not, it's not a bad thought, actually, because, I, like I said, I think the word can sound very kind of hierarchical. I wonder if entrepreneurship is a better word, but it's, um, it's about doing stuff and changing things. Let's talk about Next Generation. Um, t tell me a little bit more about the programme. So I'll start with why, um, if that's all right. So I, I said before I did this uh, clinical fellowship at NH England, and I got about six or seven weeks into that role, and I started to get this sense that it was really going to change things for me. Um, for three reasons. The first is I was getting knowledge and skills that I'd never had before. So it sounds really simple, but just stuff like how is the NHS structured or how are decisions made um, and, and leadership skills, which actually started with learning about myself as a leader. Uh, someone once said the best definition of leadership is leading yourself. And I think there's some truth in that. The second thing was being part of this amazing group of other clinical fellows who are all young junior doctors in different specialties at a similar stage of training to me. And the third thing, probably the most important thing actually, was getting to meet senior leaders. So actually having honest conversations with them and you know, realising they're just normal human beings and they often didn't have a grand plan, they've made mistakes along the way, they still get that sense of imposter syndrome. But actually they were just like me once. Um, I guess the difference being that instead of just getting frustrated by things around them, they made a choice to get off the sidelines and onto the pitch and do something about it. And I guess when you have a really, really good experience, what's the first thing that you want to do? You want to share it. Because when you share something, it grows. And that's, that's the feeling that I had, and that's how Next Generation GP was born. Sounds like it, actually you had, it, you had the inspiration from everyone that, that was there with you in the programme. Um, and so how did you then develop the programme? So, you know, 
what led to the current format? And could you tell us, tell the listeners out there what the format's really like at the moment? So about 80 months ago, I was actually in a pub at a conference and I got chatting to this other GP trainee. This makes it sound like I've got a really good pub chat, I promise. It's not, <laughs> it's not normally like that. But I was telling him about this feeling I had of, you know, I really want to do something about this experience I'm having. And he said, oh, there's a GP in Birmingham called Nick Harding. You should have a chat with him because he's done a programme for aspiring CCG leaders. So kind of a generation above where we are. So um, to cut a long story short, I got in touch with Nick and found out what he did. And his programme was a really similar to format um, to what Next Generation GP follows, which is an evening programme. And each evening is split into two halves. So the first half is a workshop or a lecture around something we don't normally get in our training. So that that stuff I talked about, the knowledge and skills that I got in the fellowship, like, you know, how is the NHS structured? Or how do you actually tell a compelling story to make change happen? And learning about yourself as a leader. And the second half is an interview um, with a national leader, usually from primary care or secondary care or even social care and beyond. Um, the reasoning behind that is, I think, if you just invite people to come and talk, you often get sort of recycled PowerPoints from elsewhere. But if you sit them down, like you're doing with me right now, and you're asking me questions, I'm saying things here that I probably haven't said to anyone else. Um, so you really get to understand, you know, what's the story behind their title? What mistakes have they made along the way? What advice would they give to us? Um, and it usually runs over about six months. Funnily enough, I spoke to Nick before I took on my role as chair of the CCG to get some advice from him because for a similar reason somebody said he's somebody who um, has, has a lot of experience as a, as a clinical lead and so I, I called him so he can, I can blame him for being where I am as well to be fair. You're listening to Primary Care Talks with Dr Hassan Charan. So Nish, you know, we heard about the programme and the structure that you've got with the, 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 the split in two halves, and the second half sounds quite intriguing in terms of the interviews. So have you had some themes that have come out of these interviews? Yes, absolutely, and it, I've noticed it more and more now because we've done this so many times. I can touch on them briefly now. We have just had an article published in Innovate, which is the GP trainee journal, um, and there's a link to it on our website that goes through these themes in more detail if anyone wants to find out a bit more about them. Um, but I'd say there are probably about nine or ten things that come out. Um, the first is we often ask our interviewees what, what the job of a leader is. So we talked about this earlier, the definition of leadership. And the commonest answer that comes out is it's about enabling other people. So Nick Harding, who you mentioned earlier, he says, um, you know, the job of a leader is to ask two questions. How are you and how can I help you? And I love that. I think that's what we do with our patients as GPs, actually, but it applies to leadership as well. Um, the second thing is, which again I mentioned earlier, was knowing yourself really well is really important. You know, who, who are you? What do you stand for? Uh, what kind of trace do you want to leave? That kind of introspective reflection that I hadn't done well previously to before doing all of this and there are lots of tools out there to help with that I think having a mentor as part of that is, is really important and has helped me tremendously um, the third thing is you don't need a plan so I used to assume that all these leaders had this grand master plan and, and that's how they've got to where they've got to and often they say they've they're kind of fell into roles or taken opportunities and it's it's been a lot of serendipity uh, along the way which was quite illuminating to find out um, the fourth thing is they tend to start really small. 
again so we only see them at this snapshot in time but when you hear the whole journey you know they started with something something small that we could all we could all relate to like changing one thing in their practice or changing one thing in a hospital department and learning from that and going forwards which makes it feel a bit more accessible um interestingly another thing is they all have a story of, of something hard a struggle and whether it's a personal struggle at home something they've been through or it might be a professional struggle they all have a story to tell of something that's been really difficult that they've had to turn into a learning opportunity and use that to go forwards which I found quite fascinating actually um, they all talk about people much more than processes and the, the way they've got things done is through relationships and teams and appointing the right people around them uh, rather than trying to get over bureaucracy. Um, the other thing is they've all failed along the way and they're really open about that. They've all made massive mistakes, they continue to make mistakes, but the key is picking themselves up and going forwards from there. Um, and the final thing, I guess, is there's something that comes out all the time about values and being really clear about what your values are and doing things that are consistent with those values. So those are just really briefly some of the things that come out across the interviews. Uh, thanks for summarising those, Nishan. And you know, as, as somebody who's progressed through different leadership roles myself, a lot of that resonates with me. Um, so it sounds like the programme has been a success because having started originally in London, I believe it's now being rolled out or been rolled out. Uh, and you said earlier on you just come down from Nottingham uh, to set up another programme. So it'd be interesting to hear from you about some of the feedback and, and some of the reasons or how it transpired that it ended up um, spreading from London. Um, so when we started, we started with 50 people uh, on the programme in London. That was funded by NHS England. Um, and we had over 100 people apply. So already I knew that there was some appetite out there. Um, and the feedback from that first pilot, which was 18 months ago, exceeded all of our expectations um, and I think the three things that came across really clearly were it was giving people um, a sense of hope about the future of general practice, it was giving them some self-confidence to step into leadership roles and they were suddenly able to relate to all these senior leaders and realise that they're not that much different from us, um, which was incredible to see. So over the last 18 months, I've been on this kind of next-gen GP tour bus, taking it around the country. Um, after London, we went to uh, Wessex with the support of the LMC down there. And since then, we've gone to Birmingham, Bristol, Manchester, Newcastle, Sheffield, uh, now Nottingham. And there are seven other cities that want a programme that I'm currently working with. So the growth has been kind of exponential. Um, but I have to say, it's not just me. So we've got this fantastic team of really talented young GP trainees and new GPs who give up their time voluntarily on the ground to make this work locally in their areas and a bank of these senior leaders like Nick and others who are always willing to come and talk and without those two things this absolutely wouldn't work so I'm massively grateful to all those people. Watch out for that tour bus coming through your town. Uh, so, uh, so I guess a question for me is, is there might be um, uh, people out there, newly qualified GPs, who think, well, actually that's not for me because I'm not a, a leader, as you said earlier on, and I, I just want to get on with clinical practice. Um, and it's always the same sort of people who apply for these courses. So, so what, what have you got to say to those people who are just disengaged at the moment with the concept of leadership? Yeah. 
Um, so I'm not here to kind of force this down anyone's throat, um, but maybe it comes back to that definition of leadership again uh, that can be really off-putting. If you're someone that's sitting there in general practice or in your VTS or in your CCG and you see stuff around you that you want to change, that's where leadership comes in because it's just about trying to change things around you. And loads of people have come back and said, we've just stepped into our first leadership role or um, you know, I've just decided to pursue this fellowship or pursue this master's degree because I've realised, if not me, then who else? And we've got great examples of people going on to set up things that they've always wanted to set up. So there's a GP who set up this amazing kind of GP parents group in London, which she'd always wanted to do, but never really had the confidence to do it. There's another GP who set up an app for people to do physiotherapy exercises at home. Um, and he's now on the NHS Clinical Entrepreneur Scheme, uh, rolling that app out, which is incredible. Um, there are some people who've just said, it's kept me in general practice because I felt really demoralised. And I think some of that comes from losing our networks. So at medical school, you have this great network, and maybe that carries on through foundation training. It's sort of there when you're GP training. And then when you leave, you're kind of on your own. And just being in a room full of like-minded people is part of the power of the programme, I think. If you pay too much attention to social media, it's really easy to be convinced that lots of people in general practice are very negative and very burnt out and that's not true and you step inside one of these rooms and you see how much hope and energy there is for the future and I think that's really really powerful. So it's fantastic to hear some of those brilliant real-life examples um, so clearly this program snowballed hasn't it in terms of building up from you know your original 50 uh, a cohort of 50 to, to, to total numbers you've now got uh, what do you think the future is for the programme, Nish? Do you see it rolling out to more localities or do you see it opening up to uh, other specialties? Uh, what's your plans for it? I think that we're starting to feed an appetite that is so important to the future of general practice. Um, and there's so much interest out there. So I've got these kind of 10 programmes now that are going, another eight on the way. Um, and I'm happy to go to any area that, that wants a programme if we can make it work. So I want to kind of carry on building on that momentum. In terms of other specialties, um, it's, it's a tricky one because I do think this is something that can apply to other specialties. I guess I don't probably have the capacity to do it for as many specialties that I would like to do it for. Um, but I'm always happy to talk to people and, and try and share some of the learning that's come out of doing this if they want to start something of their own. From somebody who's not in, in an area that's not really part of the programme at the moment, I'm hoping to see it come to my area pretty soon. Uh, because as you say, it's, it's going to drive innovation and it's going to drive um, a stronger desire to retain our GPs and, and hopefully even bring more people towards um, general practice. One question I did have is, is really, what, what do you think the risk would be of people not supporting this programme? So if suddenly you found actually, after this current cohort, nobody else calls you, nobody else wants to get involved, what, what do you think the risk is of not supporting our new recruits or the next generation GPs? Yeah, so I think the risks are twofold in my mind. Um, the first is about morale. So we've, that's a word that's used a lot at the moment, but often in relation to hospital doctors for obvious reasons. Um, but there's still, I think there's a problem with morale in general practice as well. And for me, one of the biggest boosts to my morale in my career has been a sense of being able to change things around me. Um, and so I think if you invest in the next generation, if you give them that ability to change things around them, that will have a huge impact on morale. And the reason why that's important is for retention, um, 
primarily, but also recruitment, because that when you have that morale and you have that sense of pride in your profession, you go around telling people about it, about general practice. No one wants to join a profession that's full of learned helplessness. The reason we should be so proud about the leadership opportunities that general practice offers are are that we have really flat hierarchies in GP, so we can actually get stuff done. We have an amazing perspective on our patient stories that other people in the system don't have because of where we sit. Um, and our careers give us so much choice and flexibility to do leadership roles alongside general practice. And those three things are really unique, and I don't think we talk about them enough, actually. And the generation coming through, from what I've learned through working with medical students and foundation doctors, that's really attractive to them, and I think we should sell that more as a massive asset of general practice. And the other reason is where the system is going, going forwards. So we're, we've got all this talk at the moment about moving towards you know, integrated care systems or accountable care organisations or whatever the next three-letter acronym will be. But all of that needs strong general practice at its foundation and that needs strong general practice leadership. Because if we have those conversations without strong GP leaders in them, we'll get what we've always got, which is a skew of resource to secondary care. Um, so to, in my mind, those are the two big risks, morale and where we're going with the system going forwards. Interesting to hear your comments about uh, the, the, the feedback um, from GPs. So as a trainer, you know, I regularly have that conversation with my trainees saying, look, this is a fantastic specialty to be in. When you think of an idea or want to make a change, you don't have to go through a massive governance process. It's one practice meeting, guys, this is what we want to do, and then you roll it out and that's it, and fantastic, you see the benefit to your working way, to work, working life, and to the, the clinical benefit to the patients. Um, we did talk earlier on, though, about the, perhaps the lack of leadership skills or, or even the perception of leadership amongst um, our colleagues. Uh, so I guess an, a question to you is, do you think there are systemic issues that, that lead to that in, in general, or in, in medicine? Yeah, I can, I can probably best illustrate that with a story. So when I was a foundation doctor, I was working in A&E as my first ever hospital job, really busy, really busy hospital, really busy department. And I was getting quite frustrated about things that I saw around me that were really inefficient. And in my youthful naivety, I wanted to do something about it and change things. So one of the ideas I had was I thought we should have a checklist in any for head injuries um, for lots of reasons. We weren't documenting it very well and people kept forgetting what to ask and having battles with radiographers over getting head scans. So a really simple idea and it failed miserably. And when I look back, I think the reasons were threefold. So firstly, I didn't have the kind of knowledge about the system or skills for, you know, kind of quali basic quality improvement skills or skills about how to tell a compelling story for what I wanted to do. Um, secondly, having some headspace to just do something like that. When you're on a really busy rotor, it was getting squeezed into my kind of very limited spare time. And so I probably didn't give it the thoughtfulness that it needed. And the third reason was senior permission to have a go. So I remember standing up in this meeting of A&E consultants and being asked to present this idea. And after I finished, I was shaking like a leaf. And this consultant just said, no, can't do that. And that, and that was it, that was the end of it. And all the doors were shut. 
And I went, uh, you know, some of this is probably a reflection of my naivety at the time, I must admit, but I went away quite demoralised, thinking actually you know, I had loads of energy to want to change things and what's the point, I was quite defeated by it. Then if you contrast that with a couple of years later, I was in my first GP job doing paediatrics at St Mary's with an amazing team of consultants uh, led by a guy called Bob Kleber. And suddenly those three factors were there. So they give all their trainees access to things like quality improvement courses if you want to do that. So I had the knowledge and skills. Um, secondly, they, get, they gave all their trainees two weeks off every four months just to do an improvement project of their choice. Which is incredible. So I had all this headspace. And then thirdly, permission. So I was, I was allowed to do anything I wanted and it was permission to fail. So I didn't feel scared that if I was going to have a go no one, and, it, and it didn't work out, no one was going to reprimand me for that. They'd have, they'd have my back, actually. Um, and there's a term that Google used quite a lot around innovation called psychological safety. I think that really, you know, I felt psychologically safe to try and do this. So with those three factors there, I set up a patient experience project, which is now still going and being spread to other hospitals, um, which I never expected to come out of that job. Actually, I think that, that really unpicks some of the issues that we've got, isn't it, in terms of trying to develop leadership and actually develop innovation. Uh, if I can reflect back on my career, I can probably say the same in that I've worked in so many different jobs and I can think back to some jobs where I was given tremendous amount of headspace. Uh, so my A&E post, I, I was working as a clinical fellow in Leeds when we were setting up the clinical day unit. Uh, and I still remember being told, right, you've got to work out, I think it was 21 clinical pathways. Um, and this is before the days of being able to Google and PubMed easily. So you had to sit there and work up 21 clinical pathways for things like um, sudden onset headache and to do lumbar punctures for that or uh, acute MIs. And that was pathways we were working to, to be in A&E. And those pathways have now been rolled out and are being used in clinical decision units up and down the country. But that arose because... I was given the headspace, I was given support by um, Taj, who's now uh, President of Royal College of, of uh, Emergency Physicians. And so, you know, you had the right people giving you the right support. Um, but to be completely honest, at no point did anybody mention the word leadership or leadership skills training. And so you're sort of bumbling along and you sort of just do it by yourself. Um, I think one of the biggest benefits about having programs such as yours is that it gives people the opportunity and actually gives them the support that they might want um, internally to be able to say, yes, I can do this, and you know, yes, I've got this idea, and more importantly, if I fail, it's not the end of the world. Uh, and so, have you had any people that have come back and given you any negative feedback about the programme, or, or any negative comments? You know, I, I always look out for it, because mm. I want to make sure that we make this as best as it can be. Um, one of the things that's interesting is that people often say, can we have more time to talk to each other in the room? And that's been really good learning for me to realise that people are really interested to hear from senior leaders, but also just hear from peers and hearing what they've done. And it comes back to the point about stories being really powerful. And when I look back on my own career, I've learnt lots from talking to friends and colleagues and saying, actually, they managed to do that, and they're not that much further ahead in their careers than I am. Why couldn't I have a go? Or they did that and they failed, but look, they're okay. The other thing is around supporting people once the programme finishes. And that's tricky. So it's not meant to be a kind of leadership fellowship that lasts for a year. It is only six months. And 
our resources are limited in what we can do once we finish the programme. We try and set up you know, WhatsApp groups and Facebook groups and we have a big annual conference that we had for the first time this year, so ways to keep people in touch. Um, but it, that, that's hard and again that's something that I'm trying to work on. You know, how can we keep this network alive after the six months? That was really going to be one of my questions to you was actually you know, you're doing this in localities uh, and, and we know working in the NHS, you know, we're, although we're getting better at it, we're really not the best at all in terms of sharing innovation and experiences nationally. Um, and you know, that's part of the reason why we're doing these podcasts is try to bring some things to life and try to get them more widespread. Um, so you know, hopefully uh, we'll be seeing some of these different localities starting to network with each other and that is, that's the sort of future you're proposing. Absolutely, and I hope so. I think some of the ownership is on these local regions to say, look, we have a network of early career GPs who are young leaders, really invest in the future. How can we harness that potential and that enthusiasm for the good of our patients in this area? So, Nish, come back to just one earlier question, if I may, just just, um, as we're about to close, and that's if you've got GPs in areas that, that aren't getting involved, what do they do? Who do they contact? Um, the first thing I'd say is please contact us because that's how all the programmes have come about, honestly. Um, so really easy. We've got a website. If you Google Next Generation GP, it's the first thing that comes up. Our email address is nextgenerationgp at gmail.com. There's a Twitter account, Next Generation GP. Um, you can't not find us if you look. So really happy to hear from anyone that wants to know more. Fantastic. You know, thanks once again for taking the time to come and talk to us today. Uh, it's been a really useful interview, and I'm sure a lot of people out there are going to, going to enjoy listening to this podcast and listening to some of the things that you're doing, some of the themes that have come out, and obviously, you know, your passion that comes through for leadership and the change in general practice. Um, I'm, I'm heartened to hear that you're going to be carrying on with the program and looking to expand it, and I'm hoping that it'll come to an area near me soon, uh, looking out for that tour bus, of course. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to us today. I'm sure many people will enjoy listening to this podcast. and I'm sure it hopefully will inspire more people to get involved locally and take up the challenge to try and be next generation GPs. Thanks very much for having me. Just a quick reminder from me, if you are planning any initiatives locally, always involve NHS England to make sure your plans fit within the national guidelines.